Welcome to the sixth episode of the Resistics podcast. My name is Callie and I am a female engineer. I'm here to change the workplace environment to be more supportive and inclusive of a diverse workforce. This past October, I listened in to the keynote speaker for the Society of Women Engineers annual conference. During the Q&A session, Lorraine Bolsinger briefly mentioned something she had recently been exposed to. It was a concept I had not been aware of. She called it the Velvet Ghetto. I was curious to learn more, and so I looked into it. The origination of the term came somewhere around 1985 in response to the dramatic shift in the gender-filling PR roles. It now seems to be the general term for roles that are predominantly filled by women that have less access to promotions or organizational advancement. It's the idea that women are often funneled into roles for data entry, scheduling, organization, you know, the stuff that's behind the scenes, while men move into people-facing roles. And it's easier for those men with those people-facing roles to get promoted due to their intense involvement with other people. And then I thought back to an event I participated in a few years back. I was a panel member for a discussion with undergraduate engineers. The goal of the conversation was to talk about what it's like to be a woman in a male-dominated field and what it looks like in school versus the real world. We fielded questions from the mediator and from the audience about what we had to deal with, like harassment, pay gaps, microaggressions, different opportunities, all the things the statistics talk about. And then a member of the audience raised her hand and said, I'm looking for advice. Every time I'm in a group project through my engineering coursework, I'm usually the only girl. And because of that, I'm usually assigned the more secretarial parts of the project, like the meeting notes, the reports, the organizational tasks. How do I get to take on more of the engineering type roles? This was such a loaded question. I think every member of the panel took a deep breath. Of course, most people's gut answer is, well, go ask for those roles, but it's so much more complicated than that. When I was at my last job with a team of three-ish engineers who were all middle-aged white men, but me, I remember quickly becoming the paperwork girl. In medical devices, paperwork is huge. It's just part of the industry, something you kind of have to just accept going into it. But as soon as I learned the rules of the paperwork, within a matter of weeks, I was the only engineer doing it. And I definitely got frustrated. Like, why am I doing all the paperwork for their stuff and mine? The funny thing was, I knew I was good at it. I could knock out that stuff like nobody's business. It was just something I was good at. It required organizational skills, planning skills, the ability to negotiate with various approvers, and efficiency. And in terms of dollars spent, I could get the same thing done at least five times faster than my other main colleague. So of course it made sense to have me do it. And thus the struggle set in. I talked to my boss about it and explained that although I'm good at it, I think we should all have to share the work and that I wanted to have some other tasks that were more engineering. Over time, I was able to take on more of the tasks related to new product development and data analysis but it was always a struggle to get the guys to do their side of the paperwork. At my new job with around 40 engineers, I quickly noticed the same trend. On my specific team of 11, there are three girls, including me, which is actually pretty good. I was excited to be around other young women, but as I settled in, 
I quickly realized the other two were very focused on documentation and secretarial type roles while the guys were doing the research. And although I was hired on to help with the next generation product development, I quickly became the documentation cleanup gal. Now, in a small company, you have to be agile and open to jumping in where your help is needed. But it was also pretty frustrating every time my boss would call me in for a new task. It would always turn out to be another documentation cleanup task. And again, I knew I was good at the work, and he was relieved to have someone he could rely on to do it. But it felt unbalanced, and it definitely wasn't the only thing I wanted to work on. So this leads me to the question. How do we balance what we are good at with what it takes to be noticed? And why are those different? This is a good time to pause for this episode segment of Small Moments, Big Impacts. I was in the middle of one of those documentation nightmare fixes, working to organize and clean up all sorts of stuff from before I even started at the company. I had a quick break to discuss the status of things with my boss and the director of our team before he headed out for vacation. Now, as background, I was hired into this role for next generation product development and verification. During this meeting, our director said that he thought that role was now going to be filled by a different team. My heart sank, and I said, so if what I got hired to do is essentially not within our team, what's my job going to be? And he said, well, for the next six to eight weeks, I think we need a lot more of this documentation cleanup for the other parts of our product portfolio. I took a deep breath and said, okay. The meeting ended, and shortly after that, I went on a walk and cried. I didn't understand why they didn't think I was capable of more. I didn't understand why they would move me across the country to do paperwork. And I definitely knew I didn't want to just do paperwork for my job. I went home and talked with my husband about the job and apologized that maybe it wasn't what I thought it was going to be and that maybe I would need to look for a new job again. I went to work the next morning feeling pretty glum, but my boss came in earlier than normal and grabbed me right away. He asked if I had time to talk. He started the meeting with, I saw the wind go out of your sails yesterday when our director talked about your upcoming role. Whoa, he spent 30 minutes talking about various solutions and options. He asked me what I wanted to be doing. He offered to let me switch teams so that I could do the work that I was hired for. It absolutely blew my mind. I couldn't believe he noticed. I couldn't believe he took such quick action. This was a pretty small thing, but it drastically shifted my opinion of him and my trust in him. All right, back to the main topic of understanding how to balance what we're good at with what it takes to be noticed. I recently heard about the Simpsons paradox in statistics. Although the study is pretty old, it highlights the need to understand your data rather than just spitting out percentages. Back in 1973, the fall admissions into UC Berkeley seemed to show a substantial difference in the number of men and women accepted into their grad programs. 44% of men were admitted, while 35% of women were. Seems like a pretty big issue. Upon further investigation, it was noted that the individual departments had very different results. There were six out of the 85 departments that were significantly biased against men, meaning a much higher percentage of women were accepted into that department than men, and four of the 85 that were significantly biased against women, meaning a much higher percentage of men were accepted. When the groups were analyzed, 
women tended to apply much more to competitive programs, meaning programs with many more applicants with a smaller pool of acceptance. These were fields like English or literature. On the other hand, the men tended to apply to the less competitive programs like engineering and chemistry. Let's walk through an example. I'll keep the numbers simple. If a thousand people applied to the English department, let's say a hundred men and 900 women, and only 100 people were accepted at an equal rate of men and women, let's say 10%, that would be 10 men and 90 women. And now only 200 people apply to engineering, 180 men and 20 women, and they also accept 100 people and also accept them at an equal rate of men and women, let's say 50%. So that's 90 men and 10 women. Now of the total men and women that applied, that's 990 women and only 280 men. Of the 990 women that applied, 100 got accepted. That's a percentage of 10%. Of the 280 men that applied, 100 got accepted. That's a percentage of 36. So if you just look at the total percent accepted, it looks like it's unfair that 36% of the men got accepted while 10% of the women did. That's the general idea of the Simpsons paradox. The true value of this data, beyond being a cool depiction of the need for good data analysis, is that women cluster into certain fields. It happened back in the 70s, and it's still happening today. I scanned across an article headline that said something like, more women than ever are getting STEM degrees. Up to 40% of men and 29% of women are now studying STEM fields. And I was like, whoa, that's great. Maybe times have changed. And then I thought about that Simpsons paradox. Not a totally identical situation, but the idea that maybe there is more behind the scenes. Let's take a look at the number of men and women getting bachelor's degrees in recent history. I scanned through the data published by the National Science Foundation on college degrees earned between 2002 and 2012, which is honestly a bit old, but it's the best I could find. As is often reported, women are now outpacing men in total numbers of earned bachelor's degrees. And the increase in the number of men and women getting degrees between 2002 and 2012 is about the same. In 2002, 753,330 women got bachelor's degrees. And in 2012, 1,038,472 women got bachelor's degrees. That's an increase of 38%. The change for men is about the same. They increased an average of about 39%. As is also often reported, more and more women are getting science and engineering degrees. Between 2002 and 2012, there was an increase in science and engineering degrees of 42% for men and 41% for women. In 2012, 292,000 men got those science and engineering degrees and 297,000 women got them. That's about the same number of science and engineering degrees in 2012. Cool. But as expected, even though the increase in obtaining science and engineering degrees is equal, the percentages are different because more women earn bachelor's degrees. It comes out to about 37% of men's total bachelor's degrees were in science and engineering, while about 28% of women's total bachelor degrees were in science and engineering. So maybe that article was telling the truth after all, but I had to keep digging. Of those 297,000 women who got science and engineering degrees, 16,000 of them were in engineering. 
That's 5%. Of the 292,000 men who got science and engineering degrees, 23% were in engineering. And surprisingly to me, the increase in engineering degrees for women between 2002 and 2012 was around 26%, but while for men, it was 40%. Now, I'm probably not telling you anything you don't already know. Women choose engineering much less often than men. And even though more and more women are getting science and engineering degrees, most of those women are getting degrees in biology or social science and psychology. The increase of women in engineering is lagging behind the other so-called science and engineering areas. Now, I don't think we need everyone to become an engineer, but having only 5% of all women's bachelor's degrees in engineering is not aiding in the diversity we need to have successful and sustainable companies. So how do we change that? One college set out to do just that, and they found quite a bit of success. The small liberal arts college, Harvey Mudd, graduated an engineering class in 2014 of 56% women. That's drastically different than the average of around 19 to 20% for most schools. How did they do this? Well, they had three main pieces to their puzzle. One, they made sure they had women faculty. Two, they instilled confidence early. They did this by adjusting their freshman courses from weed out courses to true introductory courses. They noticed that some kids had been exposed to the ideas of coding and engineering since they were kids. And those kids were often the only ones left after the traditional weed out classes. So instead, they set up the playing field even for everyone. And at the start, and they actually asked those so-called know-it-alls to chill out and let everyone get to the same square one. They eliminated the competition and intimidation of those critical introductory courses. They also adjusted the curriculum to focus more on the world and how those skills could have a positive impact on society. And three, they focused really early on on retention by hosting women-specific conferences and internships with local companies. It's pretty cool to see how drastic the changes can be when we focus on it. Dartmouth has also done similar things and seen a really great shift in the number of women getting engineering degrees. But both of these schools are small and private, making it easier to do what they believe in. But at least we know it's possible. Understanding the number of people getting degrees is important, but as you know, my purpose is about creating sustainable workplaces for this increasing diversity. So how do those degrees actually translate into the workforce? There was a publication from the U.S. Department of Commerce, Economics, and Statistics Administration from 2011 that analyzed how many men and women with STEM degrees actually go into STEM careers. They found that on average, 40% of the men with STEM degrees went into STEM professions, while only 26% of the women with STEM degrees went into STEM professions. Where did these women go instead? Mostly into education and healthcare. 14% of women with STEM degrees went into education, while only 6% of men did. And 19% of women with STEM degrees went into healthcare, while only 10% of men did. Women tend to gravitate toward roles that have an impact on humanity or caring for people, even if they get a science and engineering degree. So the gist of all of this is that in general, women are getting more bachelor's degrees and more degrees in science and engineering. Yay! But those who decide to study science and engineering usually pick something like biology or social science. 
and even of the women who choose to finish a degree in science or engineering, often go into education or healthcare. And even of the women who get a science and engineering degree who go into a technology job, they often get placed in the velvet ghetto, the sorts of roles of organization and secretarial type work. So what does this all mean? I'm not trying to be a Debbie Downer, but to me it means that something needs to change. And those studies at those small colleges show the exact sorts of change we need. It's important to understand how women are different. We tend to want to help people or do work that impacts society. We tend to like rules and clear-cut structure. And we tend to be less interested in taking risks. And as I've talked about before, these differences actually make us very valuable. But in order to get us into business technology and engineering roles, and to get us to stay, we have to shift the environment. When I think about the tendency of women to study certain fields or to end up in jobs like the Velvet Ghetto, it seems like it comes down to safety and risk aversion. It feels safer to go into a science study like biology or psychology when you know you'll be surrounded by other people like you. It feels safer to take on the documentation and organizational roles at a company because there are structure and rules. You know how to do it right. It feels safer to be a teacher or a nurse because at the end of the day, you know you're impacting someone's life directly. It does not feel safe to be the only one. It does not feel safe to speak up again when someone makes an inappropriate joke. And it does not feel safe to stand up and ask for the more technical role in a group project. The risk-reward evaluation for all of these rarely wins. It is not worth the risk of feeling more out of place for the potential that it may be better. So no matter how many companies set goals of women in leadership or percentages of women in tech roles, without a plan, it'll never happen. And that plan has to be implemented by the leadership to avoid these situations. Placing that responsibility on young, moldable, inexperienced people just won't work. It's like asking a five-year-old if they'd rather eat a carrot or a cookie. In a room full of 100 kids, I'd venture to guess that 95 of them would take the cookie. And those five groundbreaking carrot takers are going to question for a while whether or not they made the right choice. It's truly the responsibility of the experienced people to guide the young people. So let's take a note from those studies at Harvey Mudd and Dartmouth. I think we really need to focus on that first critical year of new graduates' first job. It's those first experiences that help us decide whether or not we feel safe and fulfilled. If we don't see any other women, it's hard to feel like we belong. If we instantly feel intimidated because we don't know the answers, it's hard to feel like we belong. And if we get stuck doing the paperwork in secretarial roles, it's hard to feel like we have a future. And if we don't feel like we're making a difference, it's hard to feel like it's worth it. Last but not least, it's time for this episode's shout out. Special shout out to Lieutenant General Jay Silveria. A few months ago, during a speech to Air Force Academy cadets, he made a simple yet strong statement. He said, if you can't treat someone with dignity and respect, get out. This was in response to a racist incident that occurred at one of their schools, but the speech was heard around the country. I read a follow-up article written by the general about why he believes in diversity. I just loved how he said it. He wrote, 
My commitment to diversity as an ideal of our service is born from a humble belief that as people, not just airmen, we should treat each other with dignity and respect. We must embrace the full spectrum of our humanity, perspectives, and experiences. We come to the Air Force from across the country and around the globe, each of us with varied backgrounds and experiences, which are vital to how we exchange ideas, challenge assumptions, and broaden our horizons. Diversity is one of the truest reflections of our nation's ideals and part of the fabric of our military. It is crucial not because it is in vogue, but because it makes us better, stronger, and more effective as a fighting force. The Air Force and military in general is a white male dominated field. So for a leader of that organization to stand up and state so clearly that having diversity is essential to success is huge. If the military can do it, I think we can do it in business. Thanks, General, for not only believing in supporting diverse communities, but for being vocal about it. All right, that does it for this episode of Resistics. Thanks for tuning in. If you like what you heard, please share with your friends and please rate my podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. And as always, remember that together we can change this. Thank you.